Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Hi Hope family, hope you are well. It's good to have you with us. If you're new, then you're especially welcome. Uh, we're going through uh, the book of Nehemiah, if you haven't been following along uh, so far. Uh, our series is called Building a Community of Hope. Uh, it's been a great story so far, uh, but you know what I'm like. I like to start with a different story. Uh, so just to set the scene, um, if you don't know me, uh, then one of the things you need to know is I'm an avid cyclist. Uh, and I am a bit competitive when I get on my bike, it seems. Uh, sometimes I even catch myself daydreaming as I ride, uh, imagining, imagine what it must be like being so good at bike racing to be in the world championship, sprinting for the line, 100 meters to go, and all the crowds are cheering and clapping you as you cross the line. Wow, that must be an amazing feeling. And a few months ago, um, I was daydreaming like that as I came to the end of uh, one of my rides near Ripon, when suddenly it seemed my dreams had come true. And I came around the corner to find the street lined with people, people looking at me and cheering me and clapping me as I went speeding by. It's actually happening. I thought this is the moment of biking glory. The people of Ripon have heard of my biking skill and they've turned out to cheer me. There's even this kid and he's waving this banner and it's got thank you written on it. And I'm like, wow, I'm an inspiration to the next generation. This is amazing. But then half a second later, I realized the banner didn't say thank you, Pete. It said thank you, NHS. And to my horror, somehow I'd realized that I'd timed my ride through this residential street at 8 p.m. on a Thursday evening at the start of the COVID clap for carers movement. It was a bit awkward for quite a few minutes. They weren't cheering me. They were cheering a community of people working together, doing their ordinary everyday jobs to help this nation survive a crisis. For a moment, I thought it was all about me. I hoped it was all about me, but it wasn't about me. And although I like to laugh about that story now, it highlights a deeper problem. Anyone else recognize the desire in life for life to be all about me, all about the individual? It's pervasive in our culture, particularly in the West. But if we want to be a people that are building a community of hope, we need to allow God to smash the self-seeking idol of individualism because it cuts against how God builds his kingdom. And I found it uh, easy enough to check if I've got a problem with this in any way. This week, I've been asking myself a few questions. I've been asking myself this. When I hear people talking about destiny, do I think most of the time I have a destiny? Or is my default, we, the church, we have a destiny? Friends, if only my default is I have a destiny, then we may have a problem with individual, uh, individualistic thinking. What about reading my Bible? When I, when I read a promise in the Bible, do I think mostly this is, this is for me? Or do I think this promise is for us? When we read, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. If we read that and think mostly that's for me, instead of this is for us, the community of God, then we may, we may have a problem with individualistic thinking. 
What about how we, we view the church? Do we think the local church is an optional add-on to life? Something I can dip into that helps with my relationship, me and Jesus? Or do we see it as this vital part of, yeah, this vital community that we're called to be part of and to contrib contribute to so that we all grow mature in Christ? What about evangelism? Do we see Jesus' call uh, when, he, when he calls us to be fishers of men? Do we answer that thinking, oh, this means that I can go alone with my fishing rod. Uh, if you've ever done fishing in the UK, your fishing rod, fishing for salvation, one soul at a time. Or do we see ourselves in that first century fishing boat standing shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the fishing boat crew with our hands together on the net, doing our part to land a whole load of souls into the boat at once together? What outlook do we have, friends? Is it too individualistic? Because if, like me, you know you can struggle with that at times, chapter three of Nehemiah is really going to help us. Uh, we're calling uh, this preach, uh, someone's got to build a dung gate. And you've probably never heard a preach uh, called that before. Uh, and it's the story of who rebuilt Jerusalem around 450 BC. Uh, let me warn you, it is not the most thrilling of storylines. In fact, I'm pretty sure you won't feel the need to read this chapter again for a while. Uh, so bear with me, but because it, it's really important. Uh, it's got a really important message to us. Um, are you ready for a 360 degree fly through of the wall uh, and who built it? Here we go. Please stick with me and pray for my Hebrew pronunciation. All right. So Elisha, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and they set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hanel. The men of Jericho, they built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built the next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him was Meshulahem, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshuzabel. He made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but the nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshani gate was repaired by Joadiah, son of Pesha, and Meshulam, son of Besodia. Uh, they laid the beams and put the doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. I can see some of you laughing at me. Meltiah of Gibbon and Jaron of Meronoroth, uh, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uzziel, son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, he's repaired next to the, the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, who knew there were perfume makers in the Bible, eh? made repairs next to that. And they restored uh, the Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaniah, son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumph, Harumphath. Now that's a good Bible name. Why don't we see more of those uh, being born at the moment? If you've got kids on the way, there's a good one, Harumaf. Harumath made repairs opposite the house, and Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Now Milkijah, son of Harim, and Hasub, son of Pathmoab, repaired other sections on the Tower of the Ovens. Tower of the Ovens. That must have been like the Tower of Betis or Baltazans. Yeah? Mmm, wafting or oh, cinnamon buns as you build. The Tower of Ovens. Now, Shalom, son of Hashosh, a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, he repaired the next section and he had the help of his daughters. Now, the valley gate was repaired by 
Hanun and the residents of Zanur. They rebuilt it and put its doors with bolts and bars in place. And they also repaired a thousand cubits. That's a long way. I don't know exactly what it is, but a thousand cubits sounds like a long way of the walls as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate. I don't need to tell you what the Dung Gate was used for. You can use your minds, but it wasn't just household rubbish, I don't think. It was repaired by Malkija, son of Rakib. And he was the ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. Now, the, the ruler of the district was rebuilding the Dung Gate, not the Betty's Gate. Just remember that. He rebuilt it with all its smells and he put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now, the Fountain's Gate, that sounds nice, was repaired by Shalom, son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah. We're halfway through, halfway around, so bear with me. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the Pool of Siloam by the King's Garden, as far as the steps are going down to the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah. That's a different Nehemiah. It's not the one we're reading about. This is Nehemiah, son of Azbuk if you wanted to know. Ruler of half the district of Beth Sur, he made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, far as far as the artificial pools and the house of heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under the Rehem son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabaniah, ruler of half the district of Kaliah, uh, carried out repairs on his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by the fellow Levites under Bini, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half of Kaliah. And next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section. From a point facing the accent to the army the sent to the armory as far as the angle in the wall some angle somewhere next to him barrackson of zabi zealously he didn't just just didn't just repair he zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance to the house of elisha the high priest next to him methamoth merimoth son of uriah the son of hakos repaired another section from the entrance of elisha's house to the end of it that's either a really big house or he didn't do very much from the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding regions. Uh, beyond them, Benjamin and Hasab made repairs in front of their house and next to them, Arazah, son of Manasseh, the son of Ananiah made repairs against his house. We're about three quarters of the way around. Next to him, uh, Bini, son of Henabad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle of the corner. And Palel, son of Uzziah, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace uh, near the courtyard, uh, court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Pashosh, and the temple servants living on the fill of Ophel, uh, made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate towards the east and projecting tower. Next to him, the men of Tekoa repaired another section and from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. And next to him, Zadok, son of Emir, made repairs opposite the house. Next to him, Shemir, son of Shekaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shemelia, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired, I don't know where the other five sons were, repaired another section. Uh, next to them, Meshulam, son of Berakai, made repairs opposite his living quarters. And next to him, Milkidja, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Whew. I'm sure if your microphones are on, I'd hear all that clapping. Thank you. That was epic. That is a big list of names. And if you, you know, all you get from this passage today is that it was a big list of names, then brilliant, because that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point. The, the writer wants to make sure 
that you see that this story is not about one man's calling, not about one special calling of a man called Nehemiah. Your chapters one and two may have given us the impression a little bit that it was, but it's not. And although history tries to tell us that, that it's great people who, who build great things and the rest of us just kind of observe, if we're lucky, maybe we, we get to do a little bit, maybe a small part along the way, but actually it's the big people you need to make history. But that's not the way God works. It's, it's not just not the way. In God's kingdom, it's the other way around. It's topsy-turvy, it seems. God's purposes and his plans for his kingdom are realized most of the time through ordinary people that you've never heard of, that you've never, ever heard of. People like the sons of Hassaniah building a fish gate, or Milkidja building a dung gate, or Hananiah, the perfume maker, doing his bit on the wall. And if you take nothing else away from today, then make a note of this. In God's kingdom, God builds through the ordinary more than the extraordinary. God builds through Ordinary people working together, more than extraordinary individuals working alone. And that's such good news for us, friends. It, it's so freeing, especially if, like me, that you feel at times the desire to be something or the need to be something, something special in the world's eyes, perhaps, something extraordinary in this life. Maybe you can relate to that or to some of the people in this list, people like Milk Kitcher. Perhaps you think, but the only thing you're doing in life right now feels like you're just building a dung gate. I mean, newborn parenting can feel like that. Sometimes, can't it? Another dung gate and another dung gate. Dead-end jobs can feel like that. Feeling isolated because of COVID can feel like that right now. And if that's you, then hang on in there. Because in God's hands, the dung gates of this world are vital places, friends, to be building in this kingdom. Godly parenting is vital to this kingdom being built. Influencing the workplace, being faithful in your job through the tough times is vital kingdom work. Or is it that you feel like you're just another name on the list? Maybe you feel like you don't even have a gate with a name on it. How will anyone ever notice me and what I'm working on when I'm on just the unnamed section of the wall? And I know there's, there's people in this church who can do very little physically or practically in building this church right now but they give themselves to faithfully praying without ever being applauded. Listen, if that's you, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for praying. Let me remind you, what feels like an unnamed section of the wall is an important part to the success of God's plan. It's as important as those people working on gates that have got some, some names on them. Maybe that's not you, though. Maybe you're more like Raphael, son of her, and you've, you've, you've known responsibility in God's community before. You were somebody once, but now you're serving, having to serve someone else's God-given vision, someone else's project. And it's not easy. It's not as easy as when you were, you were, you were driving the vision. Wherever you fit in that story, I want to say take courage this week. Allow God to remind you, allow God to remind us of how vital we all are in this church family. Because he builds through the ordinary, working together more than the extraordinary working alone. It was because of Milkidja, who, let's face it, most of us had never heard of until a few minutes ago. Because he built the dung gate, and because the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate, and the unnamed daughters of Shalom 
helped build an unspecified section of the wall because they all did their ordinary little bit in the family of God. Jerusalem's walls got rebuilt against all odds, as we'll see in the next chapters. I mean, just imagine for a moment if Milkidja had said, why do I have to build the Dungate? It's a bit smelly. I'm not building the Dungate. I want to build the Betty's Gate. Imagine what the city would have looked like with a gap in the wall where the Dungate should have been. That's where the Dungate should have been, but Milkidja didn't want to build it. Like you don't have to be a military expert to know that if you have a gap in the wall, that's where your enemies are going to attack. They're going to get inside and they're going to wipe you out. No Dungate, get wiped out. No people of God, no line of David for Jesus to be born into, no hope for the world. Now, do you think Milkidja was actually thinking as he's building his Dungate that this is part of God setting the conditions on earth for Jesus to come 450 years later? Not a chance. I don't think he was thinking that. But in some way, his ordinary work on the Dungate, it contributes, along with everyone else doing their bit, it contributes to God's big plan for his son Jesus to come into the world and to save the world and bring eternal life. And it's the same in the kingdom of God today. It's together, you and I, us, each of us, through the ordinary day in, day out, probably never noticed acts of loving God and loving others, loving those in your workplace that you find actually really hard or in the school playground, going out of your way in this church family to get to know people, to lift people up, to send people text messages, to make people meals when they need it, encouraging one another about who God's made them to be. Just because it seems ordinary or insignificant, friends, don't lose confidence in what God's doing. He's building something extraordinary through us working together. Even if you can only see a half-built dungate right now. And that's why we make such a big deal about being part of a local church. Rather than doing Christian life on your own, we do it together. Rather than building our own Christian ministry, we do it together. God works through the ordinary more than the extraordinary. But I've often struggled with this in my life, and, and here's why. I've struggled, as I said at the start, with, with individualism a lot. And it seems like at times as if I, I quite like the idea that I've been given a special calling in my life compared to other people to think that life is, well, my life's been singled out as one of the few who God has anointed with some special mission. I'm going to change the world, me and God. Anyone else want to join me in being honest for a moment? If you ever thought like that? Because that was me in my early 20s in the army. I deeply believed that God was calling me to train as an army pilot. Uh, and then I was going to leave the army and I was going to become a mission pilot. And I was going to fly daring missions into far off jungle lands so that missionaries could bring the gospel to lost tribes. I was going to be significant so that God could reach the nations. That was my calling. And at the same time, um, my wife, Beth, was training to be a doctor. And it turns out that she also felt that she had a calling from God. I mean, can you believe it? And funny enough, her calling didn't involve her dropping her career to follow me into the jungle. And seriously, this caused us a lot of problems. We were just reflecting on it together this week. For years, we struggled with each other, pulling this way, pulling that way. It was terrible for our marriage. All because of what I thought was God's special calling on my life. But actually, I now see it was largely an idol of individualism, dressed up as a Christian calling. 
I'm going to fly for God, but she wants to be a doctor, God. What if I miss my calling? What's God doing? What's he going to do without my gift of flying? I've worked so hard and given so much. So I've got this gift so that he can use it. And then the plan started to unravel and I didn't end up flying the right kind of aircraft in the army and I didn't have the right kind of experience and unrelated to that, I ended up dangerously depressed. And for a couple of years after I left the army, I was a bit of a mess. And, and as most of you know, how you know, my life was unraveling at that point. And as I sat with the walls of my dreams and ruins around me, wondering, oh God, how did I miss my calling? In desperation, we joined a local church. We joined this church, Hope Church. That was a good choice. Friends, if you're listening to this and you're not in a church somewhere, join a local church. And something amazing happened. God began to humble me and to win me to the section of wall that needed building in front of me. And we threw ourselves into connecting and serving this church family. And then to my surprise, a little bit later, we were asked to help build a different bit of the wall uh, by leading a midweek group. Uh, that was never on my list of special callings. Neither was leading a Hope Kids uh, for a session. Uh, for a season, I was in Hope Kids. That was that was never on my on my list or getting a, a hard you know, part time job working with a homeless charity in Harrogate. None of that. None of that I felt called to. And being part of the team now that leads this church, and that was never, ever on my list of what I thought God was calling to me, uh, calling me to as a young man. But day by day, week by week, over the years, as I've learned to keep my eyes on Jesus more than on myself, God's won our hearts to the ordinary looking tasks of building what we see in front of us, right next to all of you who are also building with us in this family. So we look back over the last 10 years and guess what we've seen? We've seen the kingdom of God advancing. We've seen the lonely being placed in family, the lost being saved, the church is growing, this town is changing. We see nations being shaped and the good news of Jesus. And none of it is because Pete Marfley had some sort of special calling as a mission pilot for Jesus in the jungle. It's all happened as all of us together have faithfully followed Jesus in the ordinary decisions we make day by day. God uses the ordinary people working together more than the extraordinary people working alone. Friends, I want to say, let's be careful about thinking that we have a, uh, some sort of special individual calling from God that's going to change history in some famous way. I believe some do. There may be a few of us you know, in this church that that happens to, but for most of us, watching this we're not going to end up famous in that way and that's okay it's not how god's kingdom works it's 1 corinthians 12 uh, 27 that says now you are the body of christ and each of you has a part of it and in this in that passage paul's talking about the church uh, like being like uh, a body made up of many parts and he says that each part is as important as the other friends it is so freeing when you realize that it is not who you are or what you do in this church that qualifies you as useful to God. If you think uh, that thing that God's called you to that hasn't happened yet, uh, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking, well, why hasn't that happened yet? That's okay. It doesn't mean that God's big plan is derailed. What I've learned is that we can still experience the joy of being part of what Jesus is building now, not because we have some special individual calling, but because together we have been called by him. So let me leave you uh, with one key thing before we finish. One key thing to living this out practically uh, this week, and it's this. Let's look at Jesus, for example. In everything we put 
our hands do this week. Let's imitate him, friends. That's what uh, Philippians uh, 2 is about. And it says this about Jesus. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider himself, uh, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And by being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. What humility it took for the God of heaven to leave heaven and die on a cross. That's our example. And it'll take humility this week to build the Dungate. And it might be costly and it might be painful. But here's what happens. When we humble ourselves, as Jesus did before the Father, when we say this week, Lord, not my desires, not my individual calling, not my will, Lord, but yours. Here's what happens. James 4, 6, one of my favorite verses. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Friend, that's our promise. That's for us, the church. We together, there is more grace for us as we humbly build in the months ahead together. Whatever it looks like in the months ahead, there is more grace for us as we build together. Let's not make this complicated, Hope Church. Let's just faithfully build together. Whatever's in front of you today, build it. Whatever's in front of you this week, build it. Even if it looks like a bit of a dungate. Let's keep building alongside each other. Let's keep loving one another. Let's keep encouraging one another as we build. And because God is faithful, he'll give us more grace and his grace is sufficient for each of us. It's not about extraordinary me. It's not about extraordinary you. It's about ordinary us, the church, the people of God, together doing our little bit all around the world and the power of God using that ordinary bit to build a community of hope that's changing the world.